Welcome to this week's Personal Finance Podcast. I'm Lenora Walters, and joining me today are Kate Bealey and Emma Ajimang, Deputy Personal Finance Editor and Personal Finance Writer at Investors Chronicle, and Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services and Fund Calibre. There's no lack of choice of funds available, uh, with thousands accessible to private investors in the UK. But the problem is trying to pick out a few from all as choice. So each year we collate the IC Top 100 funds, which looks to highlight what seem to be some of the best options in a number of sectors and asset classes. When compiling the list, we consider a number of factors, including how each fund has performed against relevant indices and fund sector averages and its charges. Another key factor is what our panel of investment professionals think, one of whom is today's guest, Darius McDermott. Darius, hopefully our list, and indeed some of the other ones published by brokers and analysts, such as Fund Calibre, will help investors home in on the right funds for their investment purposes. But how reliant should you be on these types of lists? Yeah, I mean, it's a, it's a very good question. And the first observation, as you rightly say, there is over 3,000 funds and 500 investment trusts on the majority of sort of UK platforms, so the choice is huge. Um, what those type of lists, whether they be buy lists at brokers or um, the work we do at Fund Calibre, is to try to give you know, the man, woman, investor in the street some form of shortening of that list, as you do with your your own top 100. And you know there are different methodologies used by different people, but it, you know we're, I'm lucky enough to to get to see the majority of these fund managers and try and dig a little bit deeper uh, so we get better access and it, it allows us to try and help um, with the compiling of, of our list and this like yourselves. Okay now when trying to invest in a fund what should you consider other than a fund's individual attributes? Yeah I mean there's lots of things to consider um, you know if you've only got one fund which type of fund do you add if you've got 15 funds what type of fund are you adding? What? Why are you adding that other fund to your portfolio? Often that will be for diversification. Um, it may well be if you've got a yielding portfolio, you're, you're looking to add a fund for yield. Um, but you know, things you need to consider are, are things like um, you know, what the objective are, what what it's adding to your portfolio, and um, you know, th- those are the main sorts of things to think about. Yeah, portfolio construction, I guess Absolutely. that's quite a key, isn't it? Now, turning to the IC Top 100 funds, what were your main criteria when deciding whether you suggested a fund should stay or go? Yeah, I mean, there's a number of things. The first thing we do at Fund Calibre is we have a, a an alpha quest, which basically broadly measures fund manager skill. And we use that at the start of our process. So we, we, we would have used that that to, to sanity check the the, 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 net, the funds and trusts that you you supplied to us on the shortlist, um, funds have good periods and bad periods, and sometimes that that alpha generation, if you like, deteriorates, and that will have had a, a sort of key impact on, on some of our input into this. Okay, now you suggested dropping standard life global absolute return strategies, as did a number of the other panellists, which we duly did. What were your main reasons for suggesting its removal? Yeah, so the, the first thing is, is is we ran our quant and that had showed a, a, a quite a remarkable, de- well, sorry, remarkable is not the right word, quite, quite a marked deterioration in that alpha generation. Um, as we know, alpha, sorry, absolute return funds 
are targeted with not losing money on either a rolling one or a three-year basis. And unfortunately, the GARS fund did have a 7.8% drawdown from April 15 to February 16. And as, as we sit here today, still is not above the unit price it was in April 15. So it, it, it was... It started to struggle. It's got had got very very big, um, and just there were not enough of their strategies in that actually giving positive returns. And as I say, that was quite a big drawdown, and that was probably the key feature for us. Okay, now we removed a number of other funds from the IC Top 100 funds, but as I've pointed out in my introduction, it doesn't necessarily mean investors should go ahead and remove them from their portfolios for a number of reasons. So if you, an investor, are considering removing a fund from your portfolio, what are the main things you should consider? Well, the thing is that markets are complicated things. Um, I, we, we've been on this podcast with, with you and Kate previously and we've talked about style. Sometimes you get a value or a growth style in markets which can dominate for very long times. In um, fact, the majority of the last six or seven years have been growth markets. So you would expect managers with value styles or heavy contrarian value styles to have underperformed and hence may, for quantitative reasons, come off your buy list or others. Or um, that in no way means they're bad funds. It just means, you know, their style has been out of favour. Other times, large cap outperform, sometimes small cap outperform. And if a fund or manager is biased in those areas, there can be just structural reasons for them underperforming. So, yes, you know, if a fund comes off off a list like your your hundred list, I think it's time to reassess. It doesn't mean it's a bad fund. It doesn't mean investors should sell or switch. But it certainly, I think, is a sort of a checkpoint to, to, to give it some more some more thought and some more work. OK. Now, you were in favour of keeping quite a few of the IC Top 100 funds. So um, what would be an example of a fund that you particularly liked in the list? Yeah, I, I mean, there's there's actually a, a, a big overlap between the IC 100 and Fund Calibre's rated funds and trusts. So several I, I could have picked from. Um, one that sort of st- stands out is Lion Trust, Special Situations. It's a really consistent fund and does have a mid and small cap bias, which over long periods we tend to prefer. Um, it had a slightly more challenging year when va- when actually last year there was more value style in the market. But the, the long-term track record of the managers and you know, Anthony Cross has been on that fund since launch. Another thing actually worth pointing out is, is, is duration of the manager on a fund is also quite important. It means they've been through the, all of the majority of the track record. Um, and they've got a clearly defined process where they look for um, you know, repeat revenues, some form of intellectual property. And that process has served them well to deliver good long-term outperformance, actually with slightly lower risk than the majority of their sector. Okay, just just picking up actually on one of the points you made, you're saying they had a, a tough time in the short term. Quite a few top managers have actually had a tough time in the short term. Is it because this value rally happened last year? What would be the main things? I mean, a lot of managers were like, well, we didn't hold miners, say so let's Mark Barnett, Neil Woodford. Um, was it quite literally a, a dash for trash, meaning that quality managers didn't do I mean, as if well? We think or... It's... 
you know, t- touted as 10 years since the start of the financial crisis with the run on Northern Rock. We've had incredibly different markets. 2009 was absolutely a dash for trash, totally led by businesses that if they hadn't gone bust, actually some some of them went up several hundreds of percent, namely house builders um, as a sector to pick on. Then we went through sort of the euro sovereign crisis where we had risk on, risk off. Nothing to do with whether a company was good or bad or a fund manager was good or bad. It's just markets went up or down. Um, in 2011, literally, August, September, October, you up or down 10 or 15% on a month. It was, it, there was no fundamental reason for that other than sort of what was going on in the world. So we have had this incredible market run. And in 2016, there was at last some ray of hope for the value managers. And as you rightly say, particularly miners, but also um Food retail had a very good year last year, would not be a traditional growth stock. So, yes, those mining stocks had a a fantastic 2016 and some of them have considered this year. Sorry, continued this year. But, you know, some well-known fund managers, you mentioned Mark Barnett, Neil Woodford, they've actually had a couple of stock selection issues where things that they couldn't reasonably have predicted. Um, the Provident Financial. Well, the Provident Financial is the standout yeah. example. Um, yeah. Had a huge profit warning. And AstraZeneca. Yeah. AstraZeneca yeah. was based on a, a, a drug that, that I suppose most people thought was going to get approval but didn't. That then fell 25% on the day. Um, actually, something Provident Financial has bounced more than 50% mm. off its low, having sort of touched around £4.50. Um you know, but that's one where, where some of those managers couldn't really do a lot because the management of the companies were telling them something different than they announced in profit warning. Mm. So, and I guess at the end of the day, it's like what one stock in yeah, you know, I mean, a portfolio if, of if, if, if we pick on yeah. those two those two managers, yeah. you know, they've got spectacular mm. good long term yeah. track records. I mean, Neil's been managing money for sort of twenty five years and made a lot of retail investors a lot of a lot of money. Okay, now we added fourteen funds this year and. It actually included quite a few additions to our ethical and environmental fund section. Um, and the additions included Rathbone Ethical Bond, which, um, I, as I understand, Fund Calibre uh, regards quite well as well. Absolutely. So why might Rathbone Ethical Bond be a good portfolio addition? Well, the fact that it is itself an ethical bond fund is actually sort of at the forefront because it does look for sort of environmental, social and, and corporate governance. Every bond they ha- buy must have some one of those sort of attributes. But actually it's just a good bond fund um, and the fact that it has its ethical criteria where it does screen out some of the obvious sectors including mining, tobacco, arms, hasn't stopped it having very good long-term track record. In fact it was the number one bond fund over 12 months and over five years it's a number two bond fund. So you know that it's a good fund. Um, and for those who wish to have some form of ethicality or social and responsible investing outlook, that this is clearly a standout um, bond fund. It yields 3.8%. It's got a perfectly healthy yield. So, um, and again, the manager has been on that fund for in excess of 10 years and you know has been through that up and down market cycle I described a few moments ago. In saying taking um, those factors into consideration, um, is this fund only an option for ethical investors? Well, no, as I say, it's it, it's a good bond fund in its own right. Um, the fact that it, it has managed to achieve those results with some constraints, I think, um, you know, can point to actually being a standout bond fund and one that, that 
people who want to invest in an ethical or social responsible fund should have very much near the top of their list. Okay, thank you, Darius. And you can see more of his views on our funds in this week's magazine and the website. Now, alongside the IC Top 100 funds focused on core areas, such as global equities and bonds, we also include some which offer exposure to alternative assets. Emma, you recently met the managers of one of these. Which fund was it and what does it invest in? That's right, Leonora. I met the managers of a fund called Harbourfest Global Private Equity, which is a fund of private equity funds. It's managed by Harbourfest advisors who are global specialists in investing in private markets. What kind of private equity investments does it invest in? Well, there are three types, really. It invests in funds, which either have a primary focus, so um, they provide commitments to private equity funds during their initial fundraising stage, or secondary investments, which are purchases of private equity fund interests after the initial fundraising stage, or they can invest directly as co-investments, which are purchases of interest directly into operating companies. Okay, so what would be examples of companies that its funds provide exposure to? Well, considering um, through all these funds, it's got an underlying portfolio of around 7,000 companies. That's very um, diversified. Very, very diversified. It's got a lot of exposure to unlisted companies. Um, nearly two-thirds of these are in consumer and technology companies. And um, the portfolio has in the past included high-profile technology companies such as Facebook, Skype, LinkedIn and Twitter. And more recently, Uber, Airbnb and Snapchat. Okay, some big names there. Mm. So what sort of track record does Harbourvest Global Private Equity have? Well, over the long term, it's got a very strong um, performance record. So over five years, its share price has delivered an 186% return, and that's compared to 103% by the FTSE world. Um, and over three and five years, its net asset value has also outperformed the FTSE world. But in the last year, the trust's NAV performance, net asset value, um, has lagged the index. And for the first time in its history, its annual NAV failed to outperform listed markets um, by more than 5%, which is which is one of their aims. Right. So why is this? Well, um, there are a number of reasons. I mean, we've, we've talked about what a sort of strange year 2016 was in terms of markets. Um, they say that this rapid rise um, that we saw in listed markets towards the end of 2016 um, had an effect, especially as private equity valuations didn't rise half as much and um, they're typically valued every three to six months. So they lagged the the general rise that we saw in, in public markets. Also, the trust has been increasing its commitment to new funds and they're doing that to build growth for the future. But in the short term, that's exerted a, a bit of a lag. Okay. Now, Harbourvest Global Private Equity is an investment trust. So is it trading at a premium or a discount to its net asset value? It's trading on a discount of 18.2% as of today, um, which is actually a little bit wider than the sector average of 14%. But it has narrowed substantially from about two years ago when it was trading on a discount of 26%. Okay. And is this a fair reflection of the trust's assets? Um, well, when I spoke to the director of investments at this trust, he didn't really think it was a fair reflection of the value of an online portfolio because he said that typically um, when the companies are realised either through a sale or an initial public offering, they tend to sort of be realised on a premium of something like 30 to 50%. 
which shows that actually the, the actual NAV is quite conservative. Um, and um, considering the discount you're also getting on the share price, there's a, there's a lot of sort of um, buffer for good value here. Okay, interesting. Um, Darius, do you think it's a good idea for investors to have exposure to an esoteric asset in their portfolio, for example, like private equity? Yeah, I mean, private equity is a very uncorrelated asset. And, um, you know, a lot of UK retail investors tend to use venture capital trusts to, to access private equity, where you're you are buying unquoted companies, but you actually get a bit of a tax break for doing so. Um, so, yeah, it is a nice uncorrelated asset, um, good for portfolio diversification, but it's also illiquid. And I think the liquid nature of private equity also features in the fact that, that the majority of their trusts trade at a, at a discount. So, you know, it's also specialist. So mm. I think people need to be aware that if you've got a broader portfolio, having something esoteric like private equity is a perfectly good thing. But if you've got one or two funds and you're starting on your investment journey, probably a little too soon for something like that. Okay. So um, following on from that, um, other than having a broad portfolio, what kind of investors could consider including private equity and what percentage of portfolios could it roughly account for? I mean, if you've already got a, a broad portfolio, we would always say to never have more than 5% in any one single esoteric type of idea whether that be something specialist like technology or biotech um, or regional focus like India or China or whatever it might be and I would also probably even high-risk investors they probably don't want to have more than 30 or 40 percent of their portfolio in in a majority of those type of ideas so you could have five percent in emerging markets and have five percent in India and China and the next thing you know well actually you've probably got 20 or 30 percent of your your portfolio in quite risky mm right risky part so you know any individual idea probably not more than five percent for for higher risk investors with broad portfolios and probably not more than say 30 percent in them in aggregate i would say and that would be for high risk investors yeah bearing that in mind um what other alternative areas um could investors with high risk appetites and long-term time horizons include in their portfolios well, in the investment trust world, there are lots of interesting um, alternatives from infrastructure um, to student accommodation. There are solar technology um, investment trusts. Uh, all sorts of interesting uncorrelated, along with private equity, and there are floating rate debt specialists. Um, all of these would be sort of esoteric and off benchmark ideas there are also trusts that invest in care homes um you know it's an interesting demographic with 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 the population aging the supply demand for care homes is i think a given and if you've got a trust that's buying care homes it's not really a capital growth story it's more of an income story but there are those sorts of plays um that, that that you know, that investors can look for. Okay, thank you, Darius. Some helpful suggestions. Now, as well as picking the right funds, holding them in a tax-efficient wrapper, such as an ISA or SIP, via a reliable broker is also very important, as costs and being able to make transactions when you need to can have a significant impact on your returns. As with any product, if things are not satisfactory with your broker, then one option is to switch to another. But it seems that this isn't necessarily easy. Kate, 
Why is this? Um, well, I guess the first thing to say is it can take quite a long time to move your ISA across. So depending on what you hold, it could take up to 30 days. Um, and in fact, it can take a lot longer. Um, HMRC advises that it should take around 15 working days for a cash ISA to move to a new broker or provider, 30 working days for stocks and shares. But that's only a guideline, can take longer. Um, it can also cost you quite a bit of money, both in terms of the exit fees you will pay to move lines of stock or funds across, and also in terms of the time you spend out of the market. Because when you are mid-transfer, you can't deal in your account. So, you know, if the market crashes, you're, you're kind of, you're stuck there. Um, also worth bearing in mind, there are a few restrictions around what you can and cannot do. Um, so you, if you want to move your current year or money from your current year ISA, um, you have to move the whole thing across. You can't just move chunks here and there, although you can move chunks of previous tax year ISAs. Um, also, slightly more obvious things like you couldn't move a JISA into an adult stocks and shares ISA with another provider. Okay, what are the main ways to move your ISA to another broker? So there are two main ways. You either move your stocks and funds in specie, which means that you leave them invested, you remain in the market, and your platform uh, does the move, you know, keeping you in those investments, or you transfer um, as cash. But the key thing here is you ask your broker, your new platform, to do it for you. Don't cash in all of your shares um, and then move them over because uh, that will count as a new subscription to a, to your current tax year ISA. Okay, so which method's better? Well, it very much depends. Um, the reasons you might want to move in species, so remain invested, include uh, if you're about to get paid a dividend, for example, from one of your holdings, um, or if you don't want to miss out on, a, on market gains and you are really keen to stay invested, that might be a reason to, to move in specie. Um, and that is, I think, seen as often the best way. But in fact, there are plenty of reasons that you might want to move in cash. For a start, it's much cheaper to do that. Um, platforms charge a lot more to move in specie than they do in cash. Uh, if you're worried about an imminent market fall and you think this transfer could take uh, you know, one or two months even and you don't want to not be able to deal in that time, um, then you might want to move as cash. Um, there are also other reasons. Think about whether your new platform either offers things that you don't currently hold and you might want to kind of move into a different share class, take up opportunities, or maybe it doesn't support things that you do hold, in which case you would also need to cash in. Um, and there is something to be said for, if you're making a move, having a think about just what you hold and maybe having a bit of a rationalisation of your portfolio and starting with a bit of a fresh sheet. Okay, now you've raised the issue of costs, um, which obviously aren't a good thing. So if you are moving over, what are some of the cheaper platforms for moving away? Yeah, well, some of them don't charge at all. So um, IG doesn't charge at all, uh, either for cash um, or in specie. Um, and Vanguard and Fidelity Personal Investing, same thing. Barclays New Smart Investor platform doesn't charge either. Okay, thank you, Kate. And you can see her full roundup of the cost of transferring your ISA to another broker in this week's money section and the website. That's all we've got time for today, so it just remains to thank Kate Bailey and Emma Ajumang at Investors Chronicle and Darius McDermott, Managing Director at Chelsea Financial Services.
You can see the full list of IC Top 100 funds and read more on Harbourvest Global Private Equity and the costs of transferring your ISA to another broker in this week's issue of Investors Chronicle on the website. Thank you for listening and have a good weekend.